Good evening. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and we are going to take our study from Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30 uh, through 43 this evening. Considering all the wickedness in the world is pretty difficult for us to swallow, isn't it? As we consider all the wickedness in the world and the terrible things that people do at times to other people and the terrible ways that people live their lives, I think we often wonder, why does God put up with this? How can we actually say that Jesus Christ is king? How can we actually say that he is ruling with all power in his kingdom if there is so much suffering, if there is so much wickedness? Well, Matthew chapter 13 presents multiple parables that speak about what Christ's kingdom is like, what Christ's kingdom will be like when it comes to creation, when it comes to the world. And in specific, Matthew chapter 13, verses 23 through 24 through 43, gives three parables that describe to us what the world looks like in specific with the kingdom in it and how the kingdom of heaven grows, though there are wicked people in the midst of the kingdom, in the midst of people in this world, in the midst of the growing kingdom. See, thinking about widespread evil initially causes us to think that Christ's kingdom and Christ's rule is dead, does it not? But these three parables that we're going to study today, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven, are going to actually comfort us in the midst of wickedness and teach us the mindsets that we ought to have as we prepare for the coming judgment. But I think before we go ahead and get into the parables, I think it's important for us to go ahead and ask the question, what is Jesus referring to when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven? When Jesus says, uh, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, what is he talking about? What is the kingdom of heaven? I think it'd be helpful, helpful for us to consider how we normally talk about kingdoms and kings in this world and then transfer that imagery to the kingdom of heaven. And that will kind of help us get a good foundation for what the kingdom of heaven is like, what Jesus is speaking of. Think for a moment about King Solomon's kingdom. What was it like? Well, it was like any other kingdom. There was a king, Solomon. There were subjects of that king, all of Israel. There was a territory of that kingdom, all of Canaan and even beyond. There was influence of that kingdom. There was power. There was subjugation of enemies. There was expansion of borders. Those are all things we think about when we think about a kingdom, right? We think about a king. We think about law. We think about expanding borders. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we ought not forget that imagery, that imagery that we have in our own minds when we think about the kingdom of heaven, when we think about Christ establishing his rule and creation. Because all of these ideas are encompassed in the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And different parables throughout Matthew 13 and throughout the New Testament emphasize different aspects of the kingdom. Some parables emphasize the power of the king. 
Some parables talk about what the subjects of that kingdom will be like. Other parables talk about, like last week, uh, how people are, are going to receive the good news of the kingdom and how different people react to the kingdom. And this week, what we're going to see is how uh, is what the kingdom of heaven will look like and rather what the world will look like when the kingdom of heaven comes into it and wickedness is still around. And so there are different aspects that different parables are trying to emphasize. And by saying that the kingdom of heaven is near, Christ is declaring to his followers that he is soon going to establish a kingdom in his creation and he's going to rule that kingdom from heaven. And so Uh, These parables are describing to Christ's disciples what that will be like in his creation when his kingdom comes. And so I think that teaches us to be very careful in how we use language of the kingdom. Uh, Too often we can get this uh, idea in our mind and try to oversimplify the kingdom. Kind of like Brent has talked about multiple times about the Holy Spirit. There's there's a lot that's going on when we talk about the Holy Spirit and we don't want to just simplify it down into this little little tiny concept. In the same way the kingdom, when Jesus says talks about the kingdom, there's a big concept that's going on with a lot of imagery. And though all of God's saved people, uh, the, the church, are a part of that imagery, we shouldn't also at the same time just make the church and the kingdom equal. Just like we wouldn't say that the kingdom is only referring to Christ being king. There's a lot of imagery going on. And in specific today, we're going to speak of how Christ's plans for his kingdom affects our hearts as we consider wickedness that is still in the world while his kingdom is being established. This will comfort us as we consider wickedness because we will see God's plan. We will see Christ's plan and what his kingdom will be, will look like when it comes to creation, when it comes to this world, as it has already come uh, in Acts chapter 2. So let's first notice the first parable in verses 24 through 30. And we're going to see here the parable of the weeds. And we're, let's think about what does this parable teaching us about the kingdom of heaven? Notice with me in Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master came of the house, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So Christ speaks this parable about this master who goes into a field. He sows good seed, but in the night, an enemy comes and he sows weeds seeking to harm the crop of this master. Well, when the fruit is born, they they look similar at first, but then they come up and fruit is born and they see grain on one plant and no grain on another plant. And so they recognize these are just weeds. 
What has happened? Didn't you sow good seed? The master says, well, yes, I did. But uh, we're going to leave them for a while. Let them grow together until the harvest. Then they'll be separated. The weeds will be burned, but the wheat will be gathered into my barn. And we listen to that and we wonder, well, what could that be teaching us about the kingdom of heaven? What does that teach us about what it's like now that Christ is ruling? Well, we don't find out yet, actually. Christ actually continues to tell two more parables before he gives the interpretation of this parable. And I think he does it for an important reason. And so we're going to go ahead and continue. And we're going to notice the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And as we study the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, I want for our minds to be churning and thinking, why? Why is Christ combining all of these parables together? He's got a message. He's got a singular message for us to learn. These are, this is going to work together into something cohesive. And so let's keep studying to see how these three parables fit together. Notice with me, verse 31 through 33, the mustard seed and the leaven parables. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed uh, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Let's first handle the parable of the mustard seed briefly. Mustard seeds were famously small in comparison to the to the large plant that grew out of that small seed. There's a contrast here. And Jesus uses this contrast, this small seed that grows into a great big plant to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. It will start small, but it will finish large. In fact, larger than all the other plants in the garden. Consider why this is significant for Jesus and the disciples to consider. Why the kingdom of heaven? Why is it significant for Jesus to say the kingdom will start small, but grow to be great and large? Well, think about the promises that have been made throughout scripture to even think about what we've been studying in Isaiah and how we've seen uh, in different parts in Isaiah and even different parts in the prophetic language, how God speaks of a mountain of a kingdom that is going to start in Jerusalem and it's just going to fill the entire earth. There's these promises of this grand, great, large kingdom. But doesn't that promise seem pretty foolish when Jesus is here with just a few followers? It seems foolish. It seems discouraging, doesn't the kingdom is coming and very few people are listening, especially as we learned last week. So few people are listening to the message. But the parable of the mustard seed calms the fears, calms the fears of people wondering why the kingdom is starting so small, why Jesus influence is starting so small. The kingdom's small beginnings are no indication of its ultimate and final grand finale. It's great and big finish. All other kingdoms and rulers and fads seem influential and seem powerful and big. But they will be nothing in comparison to the power and influence and size of Christ's kingdom. 
Now consider the parable of the leaven. Doesn't it teach a very similar message? It only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven a lot of flour, to cause a lot of flour to rise. Leaven just has this way of quietly, subtly permeating throughout a lot of flour. Jesus is pointing to this imagery to describe the spreading effect of the kingdom. It does not matter that it's small, does it? Christ's kingdom spreads like leaven. It will subtly permeate. Christ's rule and Christ's influence will subtly permeate permeate throughout the entire world. You know, as we consider the smallness of the kingdom and the smallness of a mustard seed and of leaven, I think we can often feel very similar to the disciples, can't we? Can't we often feel like all of our efforts are pointless? We're striving for righteousness. We're striving for change. Yet so many around us are wicked. It seems like that all the teaching and all the talking we do about Jesus sometimes feels like it goes nowhere. It seems like our efforts are pointless at times, don't they? We feel very small. We feel very insignificant. But it's not. Our work is not insignificant. Our work is not pointless. Because we're a part of the kingdom, Christ says, that grows like a mustard seed and spreads like leaven. Just consider for a moment how amazing it is to see the growth that we have today. Just think about where they started in Acts 2. Or even go back before that. When Christ was arrested... Twelve men that completely scattered. One of them betrayed him and the other eleven just ran away from him. One of them even denying that he even knew Christ. And the kingdom of heaven has grown from that small place in Jerusalem with those small, simple men to where it is today. Think of how many people know Jesus Christ. Think of how many people's lives have been impacted by Jesus Christ. Think of the growth it has already had. Christ's kingdom has already had. It will continue like that. Christ promises it. We can't always see the growth when we're in the midst of it, just like the disciples probably didn't see the growth when they were in the midst of it at the moment when they felt discouraged. The growth is subtle. But if we're a part of Christ's kingdom, we are a part of the kingdom that cannot be stopped. And we must not forget that. And what's interesting is at this point, with all this momentum, Matthew actually stops for a moment before we receive the interpretation of the parable of the weeds. And he actually inserts his own commentary there in verses 34 to 35 about what's going on when Jesus is speaking parables. So let's go ahead and notice what he says there in verses 34 to 35. He says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So really quickly, what this does is this simply reemphasizes what Christ is doing when he speaks parables to the crowds. He only speaks in parables when he speaks to the crowds. Why? Well, we talked about that a little bit last week. Remember, what do we do when someone is not understanding a concept or is kind of disinterested in a concept? We illustrate it in the same way. Jesus is illustrating crucial kingdom truths. And notice verse 35. He's uh, he's uh, talking about crucial kingdom truths that have never been understood by people before. He is revealing what has been hidden through parables. 
And so now with this understanding of Jesus' purpose and uttering these parables, and with this understanding of the mustard seed and leaven concepts, as we consider the smallness, yet the great growth that the kingdom of heaven will have, let's go ahead and move on to the interpretation of the parable of the weeds. And let's consider how these parables of mustard seed and leaven, these parables of growth, fit into the message of the parable of the weeds, of the interpretation of the parable of the weeds. So let's go ahead and read the entire interpretation there in verses 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law. Lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So we're going to tackle this in two different sections. We're going to later on speak about the harvest. But at this moment, I want for us to just speak about what's going on in the world. And we're just going to notice that in verses 36 through 39 first. Christ is teaching us more about his kingdom through this explanation. He says the field is the world and the one who sows good seed, that represents the son of man, represents Jesus. And the good seed represents the seeds uh, that Christ is already sowing. It represents the sons of the kingdom that Christ is already sowing and influencing right now. But the enemy represents the devil who is sowing his workers of wickedness, his workers of lawlessness in the field, in the world, seeking to harm seeking to harm the wheat and bring down the wheat. And so ultimately, there are two plants in the field, just like there are two types of people in the world. Some people submit to the kingship of Christ, while others are sons of the evil one. But this for us is where the parable gets confusing. Look back at verse 29. Whenever the uh, the servants recognize that there are weeds in the field and they offer to tear the weeds out, uh, notice what the master says. He says, no, don't tear them out. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Initially, whenever we see this, we wonder why this whole discussion even happens. It's easy for us to just kind of skip to the harvest and say, well, there's weeds and wheat and there's a harvest and they're going to be separated. But that's not what he says here. He says, let them both grow together. And by saying that, Jesus is making a very key point about what the world... He's making a key point to his disciples there. What the world was going to look like whenever his kingdom came with power, as we know it there in Acts 2. Jesus will be king. Jesus is gathering followers. And he will continue to gain followers. He will continue to gain sons. But just because he rules as king does not mean everybody will obey him. 
Satan is planting his poisonous sons here as well, trying to wreck Jesus' work. The world has a mixture of sons and enemies, though Jesus Christ reigns. Now, that sounds pretty simple to us, but I cannot emphasize enough how significant that would have been for Christ's disciples to hear. The prophets spoke of a time when God was going to establish a kingdom that was going to fill the whole world. And when I read those prophecies, and when you read those prophecies, don't we naturally think, man, if there's going to be a kingdom that comes and it's going to fill the whole world, doesn't that mean that all of Christ's enemies are going to be instantly subjugated, right? He's going to win. Power is here. And that's what the Jews were looking for as well. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come with a great display of power, instant subjugation of enemies. But that's not what happened then. And we can see that that's still not what's happening today. For the righteous sons of the kingdom, for those of us who are pursuing righteousness, that's tough for us to swallow, isn't it? That's tough for us when we look in the world and when we see all the wickedness. It's tough for us to handle and to compare that and to think Jesus Christ is ruling on the throne. Yet people are still doing this from warlords who starve their own people to all the sex trafficking scandals throughout the world. People are doing horrible things to other people. When we hear these things, we wonder, what is wrong if Christ is actually ruling? Why doesn't God do something about this? If Christ is really the powerful king that he says he is, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he act? Indeed, this gives many people faith problems, does it not? And I want to submit to you that without this parable, it is really tough to answer those faith problems. It is really tough to answer those questions, why God does not act. But this parable, I believe, fully explains, if we will have faith, it fully explains the answer to us. Right now, the world has a mixture of sons and enemies. Though that's not Christ's desire... Christ tells us this parable so that he so that we understand that it's not necessarily his plan for wickedness to still run around in the world, but he can still work out his plan. He can still spread the borders of his kingdom, though there is wickedness in the world. This is not a sign that Christ is no longer in control. The world is a, free, uh, is a free place where the devil is sowing his children. He's bringing up followers that are trying to thwart the good work of Christ. And we can see that the kingdom of heaven is not about plucking up. It's not about destroying people through physical power, is it? It's not. Rather, his, his devil's followers are all around us. They are in our schools. They are in our workplaces. They are in our neighborhoods. They may even be some of our relatives. Though wickedness is all around us, Christ gives us this parable so we will not be surprised by the wickedness in the world and think this means his rule has ended. It is not a sign of the end of his rule. Jesus still rules. He's still building his kingdom. Though wickedness seems rampant. But notice why. The question still remains. Why is Christ not willing to uproot them yet? Notice verse 29 again in the specific language that's used there. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. 
Christ isn't tearing out the weeds yet and punishing wickedness yet for the sake of the wheat, for the sake of the sons of the kingdom. So Christ not subjugating his enemies and destroying his enemies now is actually not a sign of his lack of control, but instead of his patience, instead of immediately slashing his enemies, I think we could see that Christ is one who calls his enemies to repentance. Christ is patiently waiting and hoping and calling all to repent. He does not want any person who might repent and come to Christ to miss out on the eternal reward. He wants more people to be a part of his wheat. And so for right now, the righteous are mixed with the unrighteous because Christ is patient. Christ is patient. Sorry. Christ is patient. So that's a significant thing for us to consider that we'll hit on more in just a little bit. And if we are troubled by the mixture, there is still hope. For verses 39 through 43 describe what will happen at the harvest. Just as the weeds were gathered and burned, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels are going to come out just as the servants went out. And they are going to look to see what's the fruit. Notice when they saw the distinction, by the way, in the parable in verse 26. They saw the distinction between the two plants when there was fruit that was born. There was grain on one plant, there's wheat on one plant, but not in the other. Just a poisonous plant in the other. And so in the same way, the angels are going to come and they are going to determine between two different types of people. And I want you to notice the description of the devil's followers in verse 41, because I believe it's quite shocking. First, he describes them as all causes of sin. The New American Standard Bible translates it all stumbling blocks. So the first description of Satan's followers are those who have caused the world to stumble. They are the ones who not are simply evil, but they are the ones we think about most prominently when we think of wicked people who are causing this world all kinds of pain and dragging people down. But I want you to very carefully notice that it is not just those who are stumbling blocks and not just those who are uh, causes of sin who are in this group. The second description is lawbreakers. Most translations actually describe them as as uh, lawless. And I think this is a helpful description in a culture that really sneers at law. And I think it's helpful to consider because when we think of someone who's a son of the devil, if we say, man, that person is just a follower of the devil, what's conjured in our mind is this idea of, man, they must be a devil worshiper. They're not. They are simply someone. Listen, we only have, we're God's enemy if we simply live without God's law, if we simply don't have a respect for God's law and live by his law. That's pretty significant. We are the enemies Christ is subjugating if we refuse his law because we're not living under the authority of Christ's rule. Just consider how the world thinks of this, how the world accepts and promotes living outside of God's law. If we are someone who is lawless by the world's standards, then we are someone to be held up as a standard and as an example. Look at them. They had the strength and the courage to step up and be who they wanted to be and act how they wanted to act. 
There are seemingly no consequences today, are there, for being a lawless person. But notice their ultimate end in verse 42. Though there are no consequences now, there is a very definite end. He will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just think about those words for a moment. Think about how the harvest, the end for the wicked is described. The lawless is described. Fiery furnace. Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. You know, for all the light and humorous talk there is about hell, this isn't really a place to joke about, is it? This is a place of excruciating pain. This is a terrible place. The descriptions of this place, every time it comes up, it's just, it's just horrific. By speaking about the coming judgment, Christ is telling us that he is... He sees the injustice and he's waiting for the harvest because he does not want anybody to experience this terrible place. Shouldn't that change the way we view other people? Shouldn't that change the way we view the people around us? Because remember, though it seems like there's three types of people in the world, sinners, moderately okay people, and then good people, there's not three There's two types of people. And the people around us can very easily be in those, in that group of people that are destined for excruciating, eternal pain. Man, that ought to change the way we view people. Man, that ought to change the way we view our purpose to teach other people. But then at the same time, Shouldn't that also change the way we view ourselves and live today? Because it is so easy for us to assume that this is not going to be our fate. Guys, we don't want to go to this place. We don't want each other to go to this place. And I know I certainly do not want to go to this place. But it is so easy for us To just think that the world is going to continue as it is now and to presume upon the riches of God's kindness and patience and love and think, oh, well, because I'm content and comfortable today, it's not really going to be that bad, is it? Christ tells us it's this bad for a reason. He is being honest with us, brutally honest with us. He wouldn't threaten this if he weren't serious, if he did not love us. Just because we haven't experienced sin's ultimate and worst consequences yet does not mean that it's not coming. Regardless of how we feel now, our end, if we are lawless, will be excruciating eternal pain. But salvation is promised in verse 42 or verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Consider then how we, how we think about this ultimate and great salvation. Consider how that plays then into the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. 
Uh, right now, if we look at it from the perspective of the parable of the weeds, we feel quite overwhelmed right now by wickedness, don't we? We feel overwhelmed by the wickedness. We're oppressed. We're jeered at for how we live. The wicked are not receiving punishment. We feel surrounded. We feel small. We're striving for righteousness, but we feel like a mustard seed. We are leaven. Just like leaven, we feel insignificant. But God promises a glorious end. Notice verse 43 again. We will shine like the sun. We have a great and glorious end and reward coming for us. And then meld that with the picture in verse 32 when he speaks about the mustard seed and its ultimate end. It says, it's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. Though we feel small now, though we feel insignificant now and overwhelmed by wickedness, we will have this great end. Though all kingdoms, though all the other kingdoms and powers and rulers and trees and plants in the garden, in the world today, think we're insignificant, though they teach. That Christianity is expiring its last breath. We're not. We are growing and Christ guarantees it, doesn't he? He promises us that though our growth is subtle, it is so real and it is so lasting. It is so hard for us to believe this in the moment because we can't see it. We aren't Christ who sees from heaven into the hearts of mankind. These parables teach us. That as we consider other people, though, uh, that we're not going to always be able to see it because the kingdom is like leaven. It subtly permeates throughout men's hearts. And so we can't see what's going on in men's hearts like Christ can. We don't know what Christ is doing in the hearts of of our neighbors and the people around us. We don't know what Christ is doing in the hearts of people in India and China and South America and throughout the world. But we are guaranteed one thing. He is doing something in their hearts, though we may not be able to visibly see it. Christ tells us we don't have to see it because he's showing us what is happening right here and now. His kingdom is growing and spreading. So though we suffer now, we will rise from the ashes and shine like the sun. We will be with the Father in His kingdom. We will enter into our reward. And the reward is not just for us. The reward is for all who would decide to come to His kingdom. So another reminder that ought to remind us of our purpose to teach other people, shouldn't it? Or ought to remind us of our purpose to stop people from running into this darkness to running into this fiery furnace they can have a reward like we can too so what does this mean for us today i think the first thing that this means is that we ought not be discouraged it is so easy to look at our current situation and be discouraged and throw up our hands in frustration at how much pain and suffering there is and wickedness there is But rather than questioning God's wisdom and power as we look at the world, what we actually need to do is praise God for his patience. We all, as we consider other people's wickedness, we want God to go ahead and bring the harvest now and stop the wickedness now. But consider, what if Christ started 
punishing wickedness right here in this room? What if he started with your wickedness? Christ is delaying because he is patient. I think that Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 is helpful as we consider this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but instead that all should reach repentance. So don't be discouraged as you consider wickedness. Just recognize, uh, relish in the fact that Christ is being patient. The existence of wickedness is the reminder that Christ is being patient with them and with us as well. Don't have a questioning heart, but have a grateful heart for his forbearance. The second thing that I think that this means for us today is we need to look towards the harvest in our life. As we consider how we live our lives today, we need to constantly every day live with a view towards the harvest. And what that means is... As we consider our sin, we ought to live with a view towards the harvest and recognize that there is a coming judgment coming. As we consider our sin, there ought to be great motivation for us to get our act right, to get back into a relationship with God, to not slumber, to not relax, to not think that God won't judge us. We ought not fall asleep. We ought to run the race. We ought to fight hard knowing our ultimate judgment. But in the same way, there's a second way that we ought to live for the harvest. We ought to live for the harvest as we consider our oppression, as we consider those who would speak against us and those who may even in the future harm us physically. God sees it. And he will repay. He will bring vengeance on those who have harmed us. And so when the harvest comes, I want you to ask yourself, whose side will you be on? And in fact, the better question is, if the harvest came right now, whose side would you be on? What would Christ see in your heart? What would Christ see in your life? Is there fruit or is there not? There's only two types of people in this world. Be a part of the people. Be a part of the kingdom whose growth has no end. Whose growth will end with a great and awesome finale. Put your faith in Christ. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Put your hope in Him. Wait for the harvest. If there's any way we we can encourage you in how to live your life today and how to come back to Christ and talk to us about it, help us allow you, help us teach you, help us encourage you to live for the harvest, to live through this midst of wickedness, to not be influenced and dragged down by the wickedness, but be encouraged as we consider Christ's patience. Help us help you live for Christ. If there's any way we can do that, please come forward to the front while we stand and while we